If you would please turn to the book of Genesis chapter 32. The book of Genesis chapter 32. And we're going to read beginning in verse 21 and read down to the end of the chapter to verse 32. So again, that's Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 21 and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 32. Again, Genesis 32, verse 21. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night, and this is speaking of Jacob, and he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the four Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent them over that he had, excuse me, and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou, hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. That will conclude our reading this morning. That's reading verses 21 through verse 32. And our title this morning uh, will be taken from verse 24, though we'll look at both this text and some of the things that led up to this text. Um, But it says there in verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. The title of our message this morning is, Alone in Peniel. Alone in Peniel. Now, um, as we consider this text today, I began to think about one of the chief goals that I have as your pastor. There are certainly many responsibilities that um, God has given to me through the scriptures that are commands, Um, but I don't suppose that there is any more notable more important than what we're going to talk about this morning. And that is to bring you to a place like Peniel. That what we might discuss here behind this pulpit, teach, and every other act of service might lead you to a place like where Jacob is at. Where you and the Lord are face to face. That's what the name of this place was called, is Peniel. Later on, it's called Peniel. whole lot of possible reasons for that, but for the most part, we don't know why it's referenced to the same place, two different names. But nonetheless, um, we see here that Jacob comes face to face with, it says, the Lord. Whether it was an angel of the Lord, whether it was a pre-incarnate Christ, there are a lot of philosophies and opinions about that. Regardless, we know that here Jacob is alone. Now what has preceded these events is quite 
important to understand the significance of what happens here and, and what we might talk about for a few moments. You likely know Isaac and Rebecca were Jacob and Esau's parents. Jacob and Esau were fraternal twins. And when they were born, um, there was striving. There was already wrestling in the womb of Rebecca whenever they were born. And as Esau was coming out, Jacob grabbed his heel. And that was a very notable and appropriate thing given what their life was going to be like. And as they grew, we found that Rebecca had a favorite and Isaac had a favorite. And as is the case, we could talk a lot about the dangers of that. There's, there's danger in having a favorite child. And sometimes because of people's fallen nature, they do. Jacob and Esau grow. Jacob's name becomes to mean, because of this text, supplanter. Or another way to put it is a deceiver. Someone who takes the place of another by scheming or by deceiving someone. And that's a very appropriate description of Jacob because throughout his life, when the Bible begins to tell us about different situations Jacob is in, both with his brother Esau, but also with his father-in-law Laban, we find that that's exactly what he is. He tries to manipulate and take advantage of situations. And at one point, you likely know, Jacob and Esau are seeking a blessing from their father, or rather Esau is. And without going into detail, Jacob deceives Isaac and he steals both a first the birthright and then secondly the blessing on two different occasions. When Esau learns of this stealing, he says out loud, whenever my father is gone, I'm going to kill Jacob. Rebecca hears this and she goes and she tells Jacob and Jacob runs away. And it tells us earlier in this text, he left with just his staff. He didn't bring a whole bunch of things with him. He did not have anything except his staff whenever he left before. So he runs out. He ends up meeting his family. Laban, he meets Leah and Rachel. And basically he starts his life there. He works for both of his wives, for his father, what becomes his father-in-law, Laban. He has 11 sons up to this point. Uh, you think I have a lot with four. He had 11. And um, he's ready to go back. It's been 20 years. He's ready to travel back to his brother, back to the land that his grandfather and his father had been promised back to the place where God had promised that his heritage were going to be more innumerable than the sea, or excuse me, the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. He had been given this promise, and after 20 years, he's ready to return. And as he begins to return, he has great distress and anxiety because he doesn't know how his brother Esau how that his anger has aged. Is he going to be forgiving? Has he become a vindictive, angry man who's just going to lash out in the same degree of anger he had when I initially left? He doesn't know. And so in this chapter, what we find before the text that we read to you is Jacob is making all of these provisions to lessen the anger of his brother. So the first thing that he does, he said, if my brother is still angry and he's going to kill us, let's divide into two groups. So that if the one group that he comes upon, he slaughters us, the other group can run. So that's one way that he makes a provision. And then just before our text, he makes another one. We started in verse 21 and it says, so went the present over before him. Now what the present was, it was literally a gift. And so he had three or four, I don't remember right offhand, he had three or four different groups of animals and herdsmen. And those herdsmen were put between Jacob and where Esau was coming from. And so whenever Esau came upon this 
hundreds of, of animals, he would look to the herdsmen and say, who are these and what are they doing? And the herdsman was to respond, these are from your brother Jacob given to you as a gift. And then he'd come a little bit further and he'd come into another herd of, of animals. And there would be another herdsman and he would say, who are you with and what are these for? And he would say, these are from your brother Jacob. And three or four times, it was supposed to lessen the anger of his brother Esau until finally he came to Jacob. So in one hand, he's divided them into two companies. In another hand, he has got all these gifts set up, ready to give to Esau. And then he gets his, his family, those closest to him, and they begin to stay at night, but he can't sleep. And so he gets his wives up and he gets his 11 sons and he crosses and he puts them separate from himself, separate from the camp. He takes them across a a stream or a river and keeps them in a safe place. And then he goes back to Peniel or what's called Peniel there where he's by himself alone. So that's the context of the situation here when we run across our text. And there... An angel of the Lord or the Lord himself, we don't know, meets him there and they begin to wrestle. Now, I want to make a comment before we look at Peniel and some of these things, and that is to say this. Jacob has arranged everything according to what he thinks will lead to the the greatest amount of success. Right? Or what will preserve his family, what will appease Esau. But it reminded me of scripture in the book of, of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9, that says this. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Or in other words, we plan and we scheme and we set things up in accordance in a way that we think will lead to a result. But in the end, it's imperative we remember The Lord controls it all. And I think as Jacob has come here to Peniel, he's in the same place that so many of us find in our own lives. We arrange things the way that we think will lead to a certain outcome. But finally, when Jacob is left alone and he knows that Esau is on his way, that the day is approaching where he is going to have to be reckoned with and he's going to have to face his reckoning. And not only is Esau coming, but what we find that one of the servants told him is that 400 men are also coming with him. And so Jacob is terrified here. And he strips back this reality that although I have made all these provisions, in the end, it is completely dependent on God to intervene in this situation. I'll remind us today in our own lives, there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with setting things up in hopes that it will lead to a certain outcome. But let us all re- always remember that no matter how we orient things and plan for things, in the end, God is going to do how he pleases. That's why Jacob has to go directly to the Lord. He's left alone after all of his plans are completed. That's one point that's necessary to make before we jump into this. The second place is this. He wrestled with the angel. He wrestled. Now, I was never a wrestler until I hit about 18. And then I made friends with a group of guys. And for whatever reason, they wanted to wrestle a lot. And so, uh, there we would push all the furniture aside in this place where we would go. And we would wrestle. And I'd never really wrestled in my life before. Some of the guys had. And I was quite shocked at wrestling. I'd always played basketball, which was a more skill-oriented sport. I'd played football, track, baseball. I'd done different sports, but I had never wrestled before. And I think there is a noteworthy quality about wrestling that is important to understand a spiritual truth that is found here. See, the objective in most other athletic events is there is something else that you're after. In a basketball, you're trying to maintain possession of the ball and put it in a goal. In baseball, your attention is focused upon a ball and a bat and and bases and gloves and, and, and you're doing things that aren't directly with a person. But in wrestling, 
there's one objective. You're trying to bend the will of the other person to do what your will wants. There's no, nothing between you and the person. It's you and all of your strength and them and all of their strength. Nothing can distract you. There's not, although there are maneuvers that you can do and there's a degree of skill, one of the reasons why even in modern day wrestling that you divide by weight is because there's this acknowledgement when it really comes down to it, it is my strength versus your strength. And here Jacob comes to Peniel and he begins to wrestle with, there is nothing between. And I think that's an important point because when we come into the house of the Lord, there are many things, even in this room, in this service that can get between. There are song services, there are testimonies, there's the way we dress and the way we look and the way we talk and the way we, all of these various religious things can get between. And at times people can have this sense that they are doing the right thing. If you're a lost person this morning, you might think, you know, I'm going through the lost person ritual. I'm getting down and I'm going to the altar and I'm praying and there's an appropriate time in service where this all takes place and there's a certain demeanor that seems to be uh, brought forward and there's all of these various things that like in other sports, your focus can get deviated not onto the opponent or not onto what you're doing, but upon other things that don't matter. But in wrestling, it's just you and the other person. And you're trying to control that person and cause them to submit. That's the end goal, is submission. But their will would be your will. This morning, unless God would help us, our worship, our religion, our mentality, there will always be something come in between us and the Lord. Even in our attempt to worship, you may have a job here at the church. You might be a deacon. You might be some officer. You might be some Sunday school teacher. You might sing in the choir. You might be careful that those things don't become in between. Rather, don't come in between you and the Lord. Here, Jacob faces this man and they wrestle all night. Now, that in and of itself is amazing to me. Because if you've ever wrestled, one of the surprising things that I learned about wrestling after I started is it takes about two minutes to get exhausted. Because you're both exerting all of your strength. And there's not many things that we do in life that require all of our exertion. But when somebody else's will is trying to cause you to do the exact opposite of what you want to do, you have no choice but to exert all of your strength. And for most of us that are not head deep into athletics at the moment, what we're going to find is, guess what? It's going to tire us out extremely quickly. And so it's a pretty amazing thing that here Jacob is wrestling all night long. Now, of course, this parallel leads us directly to us going face to face with the Lord. And I'll say this, the, the more holy and sacred the religious duty we perform, the more it is going to tire us out. So we can study the scriptures. And after a while, you're going to get tired of studying the scriptures. If you're trying to spiritually glean from the truth of God's word and your mind is not set on an academic pursuit, but rather it is, Lord, speak to me. That process of studying the scriptures is going to tire you out at some point but listen the closer we get to just being face to face with God the more energy it's going to exert because the less natural it is to our flesh and so praying to me is the most demanding spiritual exercise that one can perform because there is nothing between you and God and because there is nothing between you and God, 
It is going to spiritually tire you out more than anything else. And I would say today, that's why there are so few people that pray to the degree that is demanded of us in the scriptures is because it is exhausting to pray. I mean, to really pray to God in the manner in which he prescribes in his word and to persevere all night as what he did. It's a tough thing. I would ask this question today. Who has ever prayed all night? Has anybody prayed all night before? I don't need an answer, but I need you to think about it. Have you ever prayed all night long from the time the sun went down until the time the sun rose in the morning? I'm not here to chastise you today. I'm here to say, why not? Because it's, it's exhausting. Why? Because in the midst of this wrestling, in the midst of being in penile, alone with God, there are certain things that transpire which are almost too much for us to bear. We find here One of the lessons we learned from Peniel is that there's pain there in Peniel. There's pain in Peniel. Well, the first type of pain that we learn about here is that as they were striving, as they were wrestling, in the midst of their wrestling, the angel dislocates Jacob's hip. Now, I've never had my hip dislocated. I've had a pinky dislocated, so I know that's a really masculine thing to say. Uh, I've had my pinky dislocated. I received a basketball pass, and next thing I know, I looked down, and my pinky was going that direction. And it was, it was strange. It was a strange feeling. It hurt, but it was awkward. It was the only way I could describe it. It just wasn't supposed to be like that. And everything in my body was saying, it's not supposed to be like that, right? Thankfully, an older man grabbed it and put it back into place. And it, to be honest, it didn't hurt that bad after that. But it was awkward because my finger was in a position that it was not natural to be in. So here Jacob is wrestling with this angel And this angel dislocates his hip. Now, I would imagine that that socket is much more pivotal than my little pinky finger, that it would be more noticeable, especially in the midst of wrestling and striving with somebody. And so here in one case, Jacob is in tremendous pain. Now, one of the reasons why, even in the little wrestling that I did, that you try to inflict pain on somebody when you're wrestling is because you're trying to get them to submit, And you recognize, I don't like doing this to you, but I know that you're going to either gain an advantage on me or I'm going to continue to have to exert my energy more and more until I'm fatigued and then you'll gain an advantage unless I impose some pain onto you. And so it was not an uncommon thing. My brother-in-law was a, a national wrestler and he would say there were moves that he would get guys in and the only reason he did it was to get them to tap out. Because he was done, he didn't want to wrestle anymore, and so he wanted to give them as much pain as possible in a short amount of time to get him to quit. And here the angel imposes this unbelievable amount of pain on Jacob. But let's remember for a moment what was at stake for Jacob. Jacob here is thinking about his wives and his children. He's thinking about all these servants that had come out with him. He's thinking about all these goods that he had. He was thinking about the promise and the purpose that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac. Now for 20 years, he has sat upon this. Now let's consider for a moment what had driven him to Peniel. First of all, it was his sin. Right? The reason why he's in this position wrestling the angel is because of his sinfulness. He's terrified and he has stationed all of these things exactly the way he has because in truth, he's lied to Esau, he's lied to Laban. He's in a place now where he knows he's in the wrong and he must come back to Esau and make things right. And yet he knows that Esau has just grounds to harm him. So he's coming in the very first place. What has driven him to Peniel, to God, To be rescued is his own sin. 
You see, what I find whenever I get close to the Lord is that, yes, there is joy, but that can sometimes be overstated. Because when I come into the presence of God through prayer and I begin to wrestle with God, it's not a passive prayer. It's not a distracted one. It's not one where all these people are, are around me and I'm, I'm trying to surrender to the prayer etiquette of public prayer. But when I am truly wrestling with God, there is an openness between him and I. Because what I know is he knows everything about me. As much as my wife might know, she doesn't know everything about me. He knows the internal thoughts. He knows the struggles. He knows the pride. He knows everything tucked down deep within me. Things that you would never share. And in penile is pain. And in this prayer, there's often pain. Because God begins to expose part of us or parts of us that may have even been suppressed like Jacob, for 20 years. You see, Jacob had tried to move on with life. He had gone out to Laban. He had found wives. He had 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 children. He had developed and cultivated his career, I guess you could say. He had made money. He had done all of these things. But all the while, he knows, I've got to go back. Because that is where the promise is at. And so finally, after 20 years, he heads back and he is confronted by this reality that my life might be taken and he goes before God and now he is completely exposed to God and there in Penile he finds pain. Today I would ask you, is one of the reasons why that we avoid really praying to God because we know there is pain? That what will come forth first Before fellowship, before reconciliation, before a closeness is our sin. That we begin to, God reveals about us maybe even things we're not aware of. Like we're excuse oriented. Or we have idols in our lives. Or we're proud. Or we're temperamental. Spiritually speaking and naturally speaking I guess. That our temperamental just meaning our spiritual circumstance uh, determines our attitude towards God and others. There's a whole number of things that when we really go to God in prayer. Now listen, these are based on my experience going to God. That when I've come to him and I've been in this place where I'm really wrestling with him. What I find very often in the midst of my requests, in the midst of my pleas, is that God stops me. And he takes that sword of the spirit and he enlivens it in me. And he pricks me in those places that I have suppressed. Perhaps I'm covetous. And I didn't even realize that these thoughts and these ways are an exposure. Perhaps I'm not generous with my time or with my money. Perhaps I'm selfish in my marriage. Or towards my children. You see, those things that I've listed today, they're very personal things, aren't they? They're things that you can't necessarily be called on by other people. Because other people don't necessarily know the depth of your thought process about yourself and your own life. But God does. And so in Peniel is this, as we approach God and we're face to face with him. The initial thing that I think keeps most people away is that when we get face to face with God, he often hurts us. Isn't that what happened whenever you were lost? Isn't that as you begin to orient your mind towards the Lord, didn't it begin to get painful? Because the the fears, the realities of sin began to set in and God began to stay. The way you are right now is condemned. You stand condemned before me. And as lost and saved people, one of the things that we don't want to do is avoid penile because there's pain there. Because thankfully, penile is not remembered for its pain. It's just part of being there. Because in penile, there's a lot better things than just the pain. The pain is just essential to work in us. A character that God desires. 
Or in other words, one of the things, the reasons I believe the angel or the Lord separated the hollow of his thigh that he caused his hip to go out of joint was because he wanted to see what Jacob was going to do. Here for 20 years, Jacob, you've lied, you've deceived, you've been about your own business and yourself. Now you're coming back and all of that you have attained over these 20 years, you now see is in the power of my hands. And although you can plan and you can coordinate, nothing will usurp what I have determined to take place between you and Esau. He comes before him and he's alone. I think that's a side note that's really important. He's alone. I would say this to our lost friends today. When you get saved, there is a sense to which you will be alone with God. You have to be alone. Jesus had to walk to Calvary alone. His friends had forsaken him. Everyone was gone. He said of himself, I must do this myself. I must go to Calvary's hill myself and suffer and die for the world. And in a sense, that's what we do. You hear people's testimonies and what they relate is, there comes a point, whether they're in a public place, whether they're at home, where they're alone with God. And there alone with God is where the intensity deepens. Today, that is really hard to do. Get alone with God. It's harder today than it's ever been. I, I, don't, I don't usually make that statement because usually it's not true. In this case, it's true. It's harder than ever to be alone with God. Because we have access to so much and so many. So normally what I have found, this is just a practical tip, I guess you could say. You have to force yourself to go to a literal physical place to be alone with God. That's just my own experience. So I'll tell you what I do sometimes. I'm here back in this office. There's a phone. There's a computer. There's a lot. So I leave it all there, and I walk up to that hillside by myself. Nobody can get a hold of me except one person, that's God. Otherwise, what I have found in my own experience is that there's always a reason for others to enter in. There's always, and I'm not talking about their fault, I'm saying our fault. We always have a reason why there's a demand that must be met. There's a responsibility we have to attend to. There's a curiosity that we have to satisfy. But if you're never in a place where nobody in the world can reach you, you're probably unlikely to ever wrestle with God. You've got to go to a place. Because there alone, notice, that's when the angel came. See, lost friend today, you're more than welcome. And I was saved in a church in a public service. I also know the pitfalls of public services whenever you're lost because there's distractions. I'm not saying you can't get saved here. You can get saved here. God will save you as soon as you surrender all. God will save you. But if you find in yourself a temptation to follow every lingering noise, every lingering testimony, hum along with every song that's being sung, maybe you need to go get alone. Just you and the Lord. Again, I'm not saying it's a necessity. I'm just saying it's a recommendation if you struggle with that. Here he gets alone with God. He found alone with God that at first there's pain. But then something happens. He won't let go. What's at stake is so great in Jacob's heart and mind. He will not let go. Now here's why I think that's important. In that, this experience, Jacob is changing. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want us to go looking for what some people teach as a second blessing. When you get saved, God has saved you, and that's all you're going to get salvation-wise. However, there are experiences that we have with God after we're saved 
that change us. And I would argue today that the the good problem with many Christian people that have been truly born again, but continue to flirt with the world and live as half Christians, is that they've never had an experience like Jacob does here in Peniel. You see, there are experiences that we can have with God after God has saved us that doesn't save us, but it radically changes the way we see the world. And as a result, or perhaps first what happens is that he changes us because of what we're experiencing. Here, Jacob is up wrestling and he has this problem and he's, 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 he's exhausted, no doubt, and he's in pain, no doubt. But all the while, what's coming to his mind, I presume, is what's at stake here. The morning is coming. Esau and possibly my destroyer is coming and is going to kill me and all that I've known and all that I love, all that I've set aside. And now I've got to determine what I'm going to do. Give in to my own pain and do as I have always done and that is attend to my own self-interest or persevere until God responds. Do you ever get to that moment in prayer? Like, let's get really specific here. You're down praying. You've gone through the cliche things that typically come to your prayer life. All of them are different for us. And I'm not saying, I don't, I, that sounded to make it sound unimportant. I don't want to make it sound that way. I'm just saying the typical things that you pray. And then you know that there's circumstances like what we have here. Seven, eight, nine people that are lost or confused that need the Lord. We know, all of us know. The things that are needed here are great. The proportions of which none of us completely comprehend because they're eternal. We know that. We know that we cannot grasp it. And so we begin to pray and we begin to intercede for these. And then comes those crucial moments of prayer where you're fatigued, Distracted, maybe even hurting, even thinking about what you're praying about. Maybe other things are hurting you in your life. And then comes that crucial moment, whether you let go or not. You see, in my own life, whenever I've wrestled with the Lord, what I have found is that I don't have a lot of stamina when I wrestle with the Lord, I give up way too quickly. Then once in a while, God will grace me with this unwillingness to give up. And here's the strange thing. I don't, in those moments very often, it's not like I feel this extra energy. I don't sense this, I'm just determined feeling. It's that God in those moments just graces me with a, but I must keep going. Because the stakes are too great. And I'm able to persevere a little bit. And at some point in that second or third wave of perseverance, the Spirit of God begins to help me pray. And suddenly that pain that was debilitating, it's like it is no more. It's still there. But it's like it's, it's just chump change in comparison to what the insignificance of what I'm doing. Here, Jacob, he found pain in Peniel, but he was changed at Peniel. His character, his person was changed. Here's what I would say to you if you're a young Christian. You need, especially early in your Christian walk, you need to have experiences where God changes you. I mean, periods of time where everything about the way you view the world is now altered because of going back to that one time when you were face-to-face with God. When I was 17, I had an experience like that. When I was around 19 or 20, I almost quit preaching and just left the church. And the reason was because I was so discouraged at the state of the churches that I was in, I thought, what's the use? 
But you know the one thing I couldn't get past? That experience that I had had with God when I was face-to-face with him when I was 17 years old. God so powerfully changed me that day. I'd already been saved for about seven years. But I think about it when you're wrestling. You're unusually touching a person in a way you normally would not. You're striving in a way you normally would not. And that time when I was 17 was the first time after I'd gotten saved that I had wrestled and I had experienced the touch of God in that way. And God used that to where the the very last thing that I could not relinquish, I could accept the disappointment of my parents. I'd gotten there. I could accept the disappointment of those people I'd grown up with. I could accept all these things. But the one thing I could not get past was, yeah, but what was that thing that happened? And what did God do there? And can't he do it again if he just did it there? There was something about me and the Lord had happened there that I just couldn't let go of. Because in Peniel is pain, but in Peniel is also a change of identity. You're changed. That's why, that's why he calls him that. You know, Jacob had been his name. It means supplanter or deceiver. And then he has this experience with the angel of the Lord, and he says, I'm going to call you something different now. You are no longer a deceiver. What is taking place here is radically changing you. Now you're to be called Israel. Israel meaning to strive with God. You're one that strives. And then, not coincidentally, Israel becomes the name from that point forward of all of God's people. That those people were meant to be called those that strive with God. And Paul identifies us as spiritual Israel. We are those not physical, natural descendants from Jacob and Isaac and and Abraham, but we are rather uh, even greater descendants. We're more superior descendants. We are spiritual descendants. And if I could have any qualities that Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham uh, have, it would have nothing to do with their DNA, but it would have everything to do with their spiritual DNA and the way they spiritually live their lives. And if there was something that Jacob has that I desire perhaps more than anything, it would be the fact that whenever he was in pain whenever there were great stakes ahead of him he continued to strive with God and he didn't give up this hour that we are in calls for us to be like Jacob like don't you see here that we are in the midst of a generation growing up and needing to be saved right now that's where we're at And last week, as we were preaching night after night after night, the thought continuously came back to me. We don't need as much preaching as we need striving with God. The message is known. And don't take that as a diminishing of the message. It's not at all. But there was a sense that there is more God needed here. There is more spiritual divine intervention needed here. And here Jacob, whenever he was put to the test, he clenched tighter. Not necessarily because he felt like it, but because it was right. He was changed because of that. And then I want to get to the last point here. The last thing at Peniel that I want to mention. Blessings are in Peniel. So he said, I won't let go until you bless me. Let me ask you this question. Let's say we have lost people here today. Let's say they're part of your family. Let's say they're not. Let's say they're just somebody you have a burden for. And you have resolved, Lord, I am not going to let go of this until you bless me. I believe... This is the part where prayer becomes mysterious to me, and I'm just going to say that. Because I don't want you to think there's some spiritual rule here taking place. There's many things about God that are just a mystery to me. And here is one of them. I know that God arranges things the way he chooses. I know that God saves somebody based upon their prayers and their prayers alone. But I also know that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much. 
I don't know how to reconcile my belief in the fact that if a man or a woman grabs a hold of something and perseveres and perseveres and perseveres and perseveres and does not quit, and if it takes decades for God's to answer, God is going to be faithful. I don't know how to reconcile that with the autonomy that a person has to seek God themselves and get saved. But here's what I will tell you. Our prayers matter to God. And our prayers matter to the result of what happens. Here, he said, I will not let go until you bless me. Verse 29, And Japheth asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Here's another curious thing about this. The angel, or the Lord, says, Who are you? Now really, he's setting him up. He knows who he is. But Jacob's response is, My name is Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the supplanter. He says, You're no more going to be called that. You're now called Israel. He who strives with God. And then Jacob responds and says, who are you? And then he says, why are you asking me who I am? Now, if you don't keep reading into the next verse, you would say, that's a strange response. But then when you read that Jacob then labels that location Peniel, or he that goes face to face with God, what you know is this. Whenever he asked that question, he already knew the answer to it. Jacob knew who he was wrestling with. He was wrestling with the Lord. And so it was a silly question that he asked. And that's why he says, it's almost as though the angel of the Lord says, do you really have to ask? You know who I am. And he names him that. Or rather, he calls that place that. This morning, I want to... Impress upon your heart, if you're, if you're lost today, to be like Jacob. Don't give up. Continue to wrestle with the Lord. Now, here's what I'll say in wrestling. Again, this is anecdotal, I know, but it's true in the spiritual realm as well. There are times when the advantage is gained by both people at different times. Or in other words, there were times whenever I was wrestling... And it would seem as though that the person I was wrestling had the advantage. They, had, they had, uh, had gotten their will over mine. And sometimes in prayer it feels that way. It feels you go through a season of praying and it's empty. And you're losing the battle. And then it can take the smallest movement. And all of a sudden... With just a slight exertion and that change of movement, all the momentum in the world has changed, and now you're the one prevailing. I found that to be true naturally, and I definitely have found it even more so to be true spiritually. Listen, no matter how deep the valley of discouragement you're in in your prayer life, know this it can take just a moment, and all of it can change. You've not felt deep conviction for a really long time. Listen, it's not you have you don't have to build up to it. That's not how it works. It's not like, you know, if I really just keep trying harder, it'll get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then I'll really be convicted. God doesn't have to work the way we work. You can feel cold and dead like a bunch of dry bones, as Ezekiel tells us, and in the next moment, all of a sudden, all of the spiritual life that you have lacked has suddenly come rushing in because you're dealing with God. And God has that power. Today, I want to advocate to you that are saved especially, but also to you that are lost. Get alone and go to Peniel. Get alone. And I would even echo that physically. Get alone. Go. Get away. You know, the preachers of old, what they used to do, and I think it's a good practice, and I suppose whenever my kids get a little older, I intend to do this, is they would literally go for weeks out into the woods by themselves. They would just leave. Charles Spurgeon, for two years straight, went out on a hiatus, went out 
got alone with God. Spent almost two years there. Why? Because he knew. And what he said at the time and what he said thereafter was there is more good that will take place with me out here for the benefit of the church than if I just still continue to keep here staying and praying. I I put that in a preacher context because that's just an example. All of us need that. That time where we're alone with God. I want to encourage you today. Let us not give up. Regardless of what our public services, whether the intensity yields or not, I don't, I don't necessarily suspect that it will. But regardless, let our private devotions only increase. Let our aloneness only be enhanced with God. Because I believe that's truly where the advance will be made. It's easy when you're in the midst of a group to be accountable to lose weight or to lift weights. Isn't it always easier when you have an accountability partner? Absolutely. But when you're alone is really where the rubber meets the road. Where your devotion is really put to the test. I pray today God would help us to be like Jacob. He was changed. I love the fact that in this After this experience, he walked different the rest of his life. I love that. Because that's the way it is when we go face to face with God. Now, how has he met the next chapter? Praise God, he got what he asked for. You know what Esau did when he saw him? He ran to him. He embraced him. He kissed him. And he said... I don't want any of the presents that you sent my way. I'm just glad you're home. It's probably a lot more than what Jacob expected, wasn't it? You know what God does for us? When he blesses us, he gives us more than what we expect. And praise him for that. That's our message today. I pray it would be of some value to you. It caused me a lot of sobriety or, or somberness the last couple of days just considering this. Pray it would do the same for you.